0: the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.
1: Hey, just a little content warning here uh, up front. First of all, We're going to be talking about Game of Thrones and the themes that Game of Thrones tends to be associated with. So there's going to be some discussion of portrayals of sexual violence and uh, trauma, as well as some physical violence. Uh, And you should also be advised that there's going to be a lot of spoilers in this podcast as well. Uh, So if those two things are deal breakers, uh, just know that going in, this is an episode you might want to consider skipping. Um, Hope you enjoy the show. It's Thursday, and it's time to welcome you to Waypoints, what where your this? staff and friends take a break to nerd out and deep dive on what the culture, that? art, uh, Rob, surrender. Rob,
2: like Daenerys, has taken a sudden turn, <laughs> and we've had no foundation laid for what just happened here.
1: <laughs> oh. Oh. You know how it is, you got an entire plan, then you just see the red key, and you just lose <laughs> your shit, burn it down, and then hold a Nazi rally.
0: Uh-huh. <laughs> Filled with people of color, thank you. Yep, and entertainment has
1: been inspiring uh-huh. and provoking us lately. Uh huh. <laughs> Fuck. Gather around the table. You've already heard him, Austin Walker.
0: Provoking is right.
1: <laughs> and that is the uh, those peals of laughter are from Patrick Klepik. Peals. That's a you know. Hmm. I don't know mm-hmm. how to take that, but I'll accept it. Hello. <laughs> And of course, we have our producer Kato, working the boards. Uh, so this is not necessarily a Game of Thrones. Uh, it is. It is. We're, there's going to be some takey stuff here, but uh, <laughs> there there's has been. To be. We we've basically all been immersed. Even if you did not watch the show, we all have a keen sense of how this last season of HBO's long-running uh, fantasy drama has been received by fans, and it's been all over the map. Uh, Austin, one of the things that caught your eye, uh, one of the one of the takes that stood out to you, was something from Scientific American of uh-huh. all places, trying to scientifically explain why does everyone hate the show now?
0: Yeah, so this was from Zeynep Tifeci, who is a uh, actually kind of um, a, I guess, how would I even describe what her field is? Um, data and cultural analysis and science. Um, she's someone who is like an expert uh, uh, source you could go to if you wanted to write about like Cambridge Analytica or about the way Twitter and culture interact, You know, like kind of like uh, online culture. Um, and uh, she wrote this fantastic piece uh, for Scientific American that is one of, you know, uh, a, a couple dozen pieces that have come out over the past six weeks as the show has aired. That has tried to hypothesize a reason for the discrepancy in quality, the perceived discrepancy in quality uh, between earlier Game of Thrones seasons and the current one. Um, A little background for me. Uh, I only watched the first couple of seasons of the show and then bowed out until the recent zeitgeist, at at which point it was impossible not to want to know what was happening. And I was going to lunch with Kato and Natalie and they were going to fucking talk about it. So I had to at least know (laughs) what was happening. So it was like, I better read a recap, watch some scenes, watch a whole episode here or there. Um, And... What had been frustrating me for weeks as the uh, stories were – as these types of articles were coming out was that they all fell into like a couple of camps and it was mostly like – well, the earlier ones were based on the books, which is true but also not true. It's not like the show has never deviated from the path of the of the books and George R. R. Martin's storytelling. And before. also –
2: just a small side note, like I- – Adapting a thing is not just copying and pasting. No, right, exactly. That's the other I, half I of this I like, also is... like, Lost in lives is like, hey, whatever you think of those, those showrunners, and they got lots of problems, but also like- adapting a book is not just like, right. Cool. We got it's, this, we put a camera in the scene and we just take this dialogue. <laughs> and we just do
0: it. It's Nailed never been it. the case. It, just like localization is not, this is not like pure, simple translation. All adaptation is an art and there is good adaptation. There is unsuccessful adaptation, et cetera. You know, there were takes that were like, Oh, actually it hasn't changed that much at all. Um, and, and what all of them were missing was analysis of the storytelling itself or of actual structural or, uh, or even just like focused content analyses. Um, about what did change, and so when fetchy wrote this piece, The Real Reason Fans Hate the Last Season of Game of Thrones, which I am so, I could feel the hands of an editor trying to figure out how the fuck do we sell this story all over that headline, which we'll get to in our second half when we talk about the media empire of Game of Thrones. and The headline's, how the not, a, the headline's not a lie. It's not a lie. It's the, not as, a lie. As, as the, the struggle with
2: all headline writing is... Yep. Ab-
0: how do, <laughs> It's not a lie. Is your is? But you can't the, what, put sociological. To work with. <laughs> you can't put sociological in a headline and expect people to click it. Um, no. And so, what Duvecci ends up uh, laying out is this argument that in the earlier seasons of the show, as it burned through characters, as it moved from new location to new location, and gave you, uh, you know, great detail on what the local cultures were, what the sh- what the conflicts were among peoples, uh, and, and gave you a kind of broad understanding of what the world of of, uh, Game of Thrones is and how it functions was a sort of sociological storytelling. And and she's contrasting this to the psychological storytelling that is um, so common in kind of what she kind of frames as like Hollywood storytelling and Hollywood uh, cinema. Um, The big difference here being that sociological storytelling – gets at the way structures lead to actions. It's not that there aren't characters. It's not that there isn't interesting characterization. It's that the good and bad decisions are not limited to being caused by the interiority of the characters. It's often the case that you can see how someone who is a villain become makes the choices that they make. And, and not only in the they had, you know, they were scarred as children sense, but in the here are the material forces at work that pushed them to this decision making. And that, that was compelling world building. That, that because the game, the, the Game of Thrones, because the show was not so focused on only Jon Snow from the very beginning, because it was willing to move through the Starks and move across continents and move the camera from person to person in the same way that something like The Wire was willing to do as it moved from industry to industry, it was able to compel the viewer into investing into the world in this way that not many other types of shows did. And then in the last two seasons, not so much. Mostly this moved towards, in an effort to wrap things up, focusing in on characters and psychology and psychological storytelling. Um, and it was just a very useful piece for me as someone who thinks about storytelling in this way. And to be clear, I don't think that she's saying that psychological storytelling is a quote-unquote bad thing, but that in the absence of the sociological turn and the absence of focusing on that sort of the, the, the mechanics of society and the, the mechanisms of choice-making that go on behind the scenes – the show ended up falling into the traps uh, and the tropes of more generic fantasy storytelling. Uh, I'm curious for both of you if that if that like added up with your experience as people who maybe watch more of the show than I have.
1: Yes and no. I think there's an element to this that what uh, Tufetchi is describing to a degree is something I would maybe more call uh, a form of realism. I suppose it it covers the same ground, but I think in terms of the way I always sort of conceived of Game of Thrones is this idea. It is absolutely critiquing a lot of structures that we tend to romanticize, right? This is one of the major early arcs around uh, Sansa Stark Mm -hmm. where she is sort of the uh, reader insert for someone who naively idolizes uh, the society and the romantic myths of it. And a lot of the early part of her arc is uh, particularly like Sandra Clegane, uh, specifically trying to puncture that and say, no, actually, this is all founded on like violence and, uh, you know, power and exploitation. But a lot of what drives action in these stories is this idea that there are these material and institutional constraints acting on all the actors I guess I would call it that is sociological to a point, but also it is a just a function of internal consistency in creating a world and then mm-hmm. roughly sticking to its rules. Uh, where what I like that Tuvache does is, you know, she does allow for the fact that even by psychological storytelling standards, uh, Benioff and Weiss also fucked up like by <laughs> those lights as well because the characters are—it's uh, very CW drama. Uh, in 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 these last two seasons, right? Like the fuck are you uh, saying about Riverdale? You well, keep Archie's name out your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> but it is very Riverdale, right? Mm-hmm. Riverdale is a show that became very self aware of uh, its gif ability, of the way it was like shared and experienced as a sh- social event, and that self awareness you began to see reflected in the show. The difference is, I think. Game of Thrones remained really self-serious about it. It doesn't play around with that as much as, uh, you know, Riverdale does because Game of Thrones has this really, like, serious foundation. And there are certain moments that that show is obligated to try to live up to. But in terms of the way it moved from week to week and characters just starting it, they stopped being so much characters and became sort of like dolls that, like, Benioff and Weiss were just sort of moving around in you know in the playset and having them do rad shit or like plot twisty stuff. Right. Uh, right. That that's where that's where all of this uh, seemed to break down. Uh, but I, I I do I I'm not entirely sure that I would have described the show the show as sociological uh, necessarily. I think that maybe. I mean you know sociological. If we're saying like the Wire is kind of the the the, the greatest example of something like that, uh, I'm not sure Game of Thrones ever rises to that level.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know that it did for me. Certainly, it's part of why I ended up bouncing off of it, even in its good years. Um, uh, I also just got busy. You know, like I'm, I don't. I'm not here to be like those early seasons were bad. Like not at all. Um, but I. But I do think that the the thing for me is that i don't think she's saying sociological as a superlative i mean she does think sociological storytelling is important right the bigger point she's making is that it's useful for us to have stories that work in this kind of at this layer the layer of institutions crashing against each other the the layer of uh, you know the example she gives is if Yes, a company can have a bad CEO, you know, you can have a, a terrible CEO at a company, and you can imagine a world in which that CEO is replaced. But what you you can't imagine is like a CEO so individually, you know heroic that the general structure of capitalism changes, right? Um, and that is definitely key in Game of Thrones from the very top, right? That, like, it doesn't, it, it doesn't, like, yes, Joffrey is a particular asshole. The, a terrible person was the fucking worst of the worst, but him being removed from play did not upset the fundamental structure. And in fact, one of the big, we should say, there are probably going to be some spoilers for Game of Thrones here before I continue for the final season because I think to talk about it as a whole work, you probably need to be able to talk about how it leaves off. Like, certainly for me to be able to say that I think it was very reactionary in its final moments, you have to be able to talk about that. Um, and the final, you know, so so spoilers ahead for the rest of the show. Um, Giving it a beat, okay. So I think that even in the end when you... Have them fundamentally remaking what the structure of the kingdom is, but only a little bit. It, it is still echoing that that notion of sociological storytelling. It is not one person stands up and says, "What about democracy?" And everyone goes, "Yes." That hero understood. It does still at least imagine a world in which, like the the weight and momentum of history is a limiting factor on what people can imagine their the recreation of the world. I don't love that scene in general. I think that that scene is literally putting all of your favorite dolls together and being like, now decide the future. Um, but I do think that like, it, that's what she's talking about. It's, it's not just like, this is good. It's good for us in this historical moment to be able to think about the world in this way and to have stories help us think about the world in this way. But it is not like... Um, all sociological storytelling is good. You can have bad sociological storytelling. You know, I think that that is a possibility that you can have a, lots of stories that just get overly complex with, I'm guilty of telling some of these, uh, with too many institutions where you can't really unpack what it's trying to say thematically. And it's just not entertaining when you have uh, you know, too too much of a focus up at that layer. There are times that you can you can fuck that up, um, but I don't think that Game of Thrones early on did that either. I think that it was it, it was trying to blend those two things pretty well. Patrick, what I'm what I am curious about
2: the well, part of what I find useful about the piece was the way it posits the uh, the the mass attraction of Game of Thrones through like it it provides a term to mm-hmm. explain. A huge part of the attractions that we don't have stories that are told in this fashion, right? It's normally characters push on world, not mm-hmm. world push on characters to, like, be reductive of, of, like, describing, like, often, like, the shifts that happen in, in Game of Thrones. And, like, when people say, like, you know, w- when you talk about things that people talk about, like, uh, issues, uh, my, even my own personal issues with, like, the later seasons, like, when characters adopt plot armor, right? Like, when they are, are suddenly able to escape certain death... Like that is an instance of the game of the show violating certain ideas that it set up of no, like the world will push on these characters instead of the other way around. Um, and part of the frustration over character surviving moments like that is because part of the attraction to the show in the first place was that was that subversion of what you expect to happen with characters, where you do fall in love with the world itself or the world's rules or lack of. Lack of rules compared to our traditional understanding of like how stories are supposed to be told and and the arcs of characters and so I found the essay just like useful in there are lots of reasons why people fell in love with the show like it had terrific casting um, um there, there or you know it was an incredible show to to look at um, a lot of that stuff adds up to a, a, a you know uh, 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 some of its parts but uh, you know when people say like ah it was so amazing how people could just die and it goes on so well the reason that even works is because of the way the show sets itself up with its institutions, but you just don't, the average person isn't really thinking about that stuff, but because that's the way the game operates within the show, uh, it ends up working. Even if you don't realize that's why you're enjoying what you're, what you're watching.
1: I think when I'm considering really successful dramas uh, that have pulled this off, What's the way to this? I think a lot of dramas have done a fantastic job of telling stories in this way that at least superficially mm. seem like they're more about characters than they are about, like, institutions and structures, right? Yeah. Um, I, I think, uh, like, The Sopranos is a decent example of, of it, right? Like, The Sopranos, people talk about... They mostly talk about it through the lens of primary characters, but really, what that what the show is really about is is a lot of broader themes. And I think that's true of a lot of a lot of dramas. Uh, you know, I compare this to a show that I think really highly of uh, is Justified. And Justified kind of – it did stick the landing despite a, a rough next to last season. But when I think about Justified, I think one of the very clever things it did was that superficially it was selling you on this idea of like Raylan Givens, this gunslinging U.S. Marshal. uh was this very sort of cowboy hero uh, going into the backcountry of uh, Kentucky and clashing with, uh, you know, a, a charismatic, uh, you know, gangster uh, played by Walton Goggins. But over the course of the that series, what they do a very good job of doing is having these characters explore that world and through their experiences, build up a sense of the place and the constraints these characters labor under, mm-hmm. including the ones they carry around inside themselves, right? The, the ways these structures and institutions and limitations and prejudices have shaped the individual characters and then seeing that reflected back out through individual action. I think one of the things that I, and this is probably the essay I, I, I really do agree with is that, um, in sort of kicking away the structural underpinnings, Game of Thrones didn't replace it with a sense of how to show these twists and turns how to how to, how to depict motivation of characters, how to convincingly portray evolving thought, evolving feelings, uh, evol- you know evolving ambitions. And I think that is the other part of this. And this is, this is where I do think people who say that losing the support, losing the, the underpinnings of the novels really hurt the show is that as long as you kept referring back to this text that constantly, almost to a fault – return to this like broader context and all the various constraints and institutions that existed in this world. You could only go so far astray, but once they were completely devoid of that, they kind of did reveal that they needed that kind of storytelling because they didn't understand the psychological and internal uh, storytelling that would be required to bring a show like this in for a landing.
0: Yeah. I think that that's I think that's pretty accurate, um, and I think part of that too is so I think I think part of the thing I want to make sure that we get at here as we talk about this stuff is that I don't think uh, Tufetchi nor we are saying that what she calls psychological storytelling is like innately inferior or an altogether separate category, right? She talks about the, the strong early season psychological storytelling that happens alongside the sociological stuff. And for me, I think about two kind of golden age of television uh, shows, both of which were canceled uh, before they were due, uh, Carnival and Deadwood. And um, so Tufetci says that the – so uh, here we go. I'm just going to read this one section as she describes this. The tension between internal stories and desires, psychology and external pressures, institutions, institutions, norms, and events, was exactly what Game of Thrones showed us for many of its characters, creating rich tapestries of psychology, but also behavior that was neither saintly nor fully evil at any one point. It was something more than that. You could understand why even the characters undertaking evil acts were doing what they did, how their good intentions got subverted, and how incentives structured behavior. Their com- the complexity made it richer than a simplistic morality tale where unadulterated good fights with evil and I think that that's true for both I think that that's true for both Deadwood and uh, Carnival but I think only Deadwood is doing sociological storytelling right I think so for people who don't know Deadwood is uh, about Deadwood is it North Dakota which one of the Dakotas is it is it one of the Dakotas? Am I misremembering? Mis- no, because it's
1: unincorporated. Uh, they're, they're basically squatting on uh, indigenous land at the start. Yeah. I can't remember what it is. It is now
0: South Dakota um, uh, and is kind of a Western set on a, in a frontier town that is deeply interested in the coming together of uh, kind of – The arrival of coastal powers with the, at that point, still quote-unquote lawless lands of the West, Uh, the arrival of, we are just talking about justified, a U.S. marshal played by Timothy Oliphant, um, and uh, the ways in which the local powers that be, both official and unofficial, come together to effectively build society build build you know a, a new uh, a new town in the wild um, quote unquote uh, and I think that so much of what works about Deadwood is about the ways in which those pressures lead characters to make choices Carnival is a kind of supernatural story told uh, set in the 1930s in in the Dust Bowl at the height of the depression that you know is, if you've played the assassins creed games there's a there's a lot of like ancient fight between good and evil um, there's a lot of like mysterious texts that are revealing deep connections between characters it's a fantastic show but actions are about who these characters are internally it's about why they're driven to do what they do and how they relate to each other about like just about their psychologies just about what they think is good, what they think is bad. Um, And they're plopped into situations that pull stuff out of them, but you're not really thinking about what the structure of the world is uh, as you watch that show. Um, And I think that like part of the thing that ended up happening from what I can tell with game of Thrones is that it, it didn't commit early on to either one of those things. It did both of them pretty well, but it did both of them in a way that kind of latticed together. Um, I don't think this show works without the character work done by these actors I don't think it works without giving you know people like uh, Tyrion the space to to really bring you into the interiority of that character even with like the little bit that I've seen even though you know three seasons or whatever that I've seen I think that 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 is true but I think that he only makes sense when he's giving speeches about what it means to be a dwarf in this society and his decisions are all latticed up over what those pressures are and so when you when you remove one of those two foundations, it just kind of struggles, and it doesn't quite. I mean, it goes back to what Patrick was saying. They feel like dolls being placed in positions, not like with plot armor, because that's where they're ordained to be. Um, instead of feeling like people in the world, you know, um, it's it's weird. It was very strange to watch them struggle with this this season
1: yeah and especially because it, and i think we'll talk about this maybe later in another context but it was troubling the degree to which when they were at a loss for what should happen next what their actual narrative instincts were right like mm. what care, like once they were kind of unmoored from the underpinnings of the novel and they basically discard the kind of realism or consistency that a lot of that frame, that framework had, had forced upon them and they just fully lean into the, well, look, anybody can be at any place, anytime. And anybody can do a heel turn at any moment. Then what they chose to do and what they chose to portray and how they went about doing it, uh, I think that's the other part of why this left such a bad taste in your mouth because it begins, like in a lot of ways, Game of Thrones begins as a very critical uh, work and maybe even a subversive one. Subversive tends to get, overused a lot, but in terms of like what it is saying about the fantasy genre and also the way like that informs a lot of our imagination and our aspiration and our expectations for politics and what is possible. uh, Game of Thrones began as a very critical work to say the least. And by the end uh, it was, you know, to your point at the start of the segment, Austin, a worryingly reactionary one and a, a reactionary in also like those very traditionalist ways uh, that were really concerning. Like this is a show that had always had missteps with representing, uh, you know, marginalized people that it always uh, mishandled things like, uh, you know, sexual violence, uh, you know, gender dynamics. But boy, in the last like two seasons, their sort of just instinctive way of going about these things uh, became even more concerning. and you be, like toward the end, it increasingly became what show am I watching? What story do you think you're telling? because I'm not sure it's the one that I thought that that I was reading in these novels and watching at the
2: start of the series. It used to feel like it was very indifferent to the audience, which was the attraction, I mm. think as an audience member, was that, oh, this story doesn't give a shit about me. what I want. And then increasingly as it went on and the separation from the books, and I, you know, full, like I tried reading those books, like the language put me to sleep. Um, Deep respect for the story, but just like (laughs) could not get into reading uh, Martin's prose. But like, you know, part of the the attraction of the series was it on some level seeming to translate some of that to a wider audience, to someone like myself that like could respond to the themes and the characters and the arcs um, without necessarily the challenge of, of the way it was actually phrased in the book. And the what happens post, you know, when they essentially pivot to the outlines provided by Martin as opposed to the prose provided by Martin is instead of their eyes being on the book and adapting that, it's their eyes to the audience and adapting their expectations. And you see that in, you know, Martin put out a blog post this week largely <laughs> confirming suspicions that, like, it's not, like... Don't like kid yourselves like this is mostly where it's going. It's just the journey there might be a little more nuanced and different and the, the pieces in different places, but that like most of the pieces will be in similar spots even if the way you arrive there is is potentially or theoretically more satisfying. Um, but it does feel like the moment the audience like turned their eyes towards the showrunners that they they buckled in a number of ways where they just really weren't prepared. Like the, you know, the, the written word for them acted as gu- as guardrails, like the, you put it, Rob, and like the lack of those guardrails. I mean, on some hands, I'm like deeply sympathetic because, like, I mean, there's all sorts of things that would not excuse about what they did, and especially the way they like, you know, have Sansa rationalize being, yeah. uh, sex, you know, experiencing all sorts of sexual violence is what made her like a strong person. Like that shit's fucked up and is unforgivable. At the same time, it's like Jesus, like they started the show thinking like no wait this books will be done we're good like yeah. <laughs> like we start this project thinking we've got these guardrails from start to finish and then suddenly you don't um and it's it's like weird to think how it maybe paralyzed like both sides like the your story leaving the station paralyzes Martin the story leaving the station paralyzes the showrunners and it like makes
0: for a very messy ending in the process. Do you think I have two things here what the first is a question for you. I think a lot about do you remember Zynga The mobile game company or the Facebook Uh game company rather? pretty sure they're still around. They're still around. Um, Did you ever read that thing that happened when they tried to make FarmVille 2? Uh, The specific thing, the reason when when they were doing like a follow-up to FarmVille, one of the things that they said in public was that their initial group of players from FarmVille learned what a good video game was. (laughs) um, And they learned it by playing FarmVille. They by right. playing Farmville, they were like, "Here is what I like about a video game. Here is what I don't like. Here are the design ethos that here's the design ethos that speaks to me." Um, and Farmville one failed. Uh, I may be misremembering some details. To be clear, so please don't write it and tell me that this was not Farmville two. It was something else. I promise. I know I could be fucking this up. The point is, they basically taught their players what good what a good game was and then f- could not keep up with their own expectations. So I'm curious to some degree, is this like six, six, you know, five or six good seasons of game of Thrones where the audience is becoming in having their expectations raised and raised and raised, not only in the like more spectacle, more blood, more violence, more, you know, whatever, um, more sex and food porn, et cetera. But also in terms of, like, I demand greater character drama. I, I demand, you know, a better understanding of why characters are doing this. I demand longer scenes, longer seasons, more time before every big pivotal decision. And they, like, tested out of the final two seasons, which – you know, in our, you know, very, uh, we talk about this in game in, in multiple choice kind of game design or in branching path game design, the diamond that brings everything back together. But that's also true in a lot of traditional linear storytelling, even when there are not branching paths where narrative threads need to come together and become a little more focused. Do you think that there was a world in which you as a viewer were just like pile it fucking on? I need, I need more of what you're giving me now. Is that what that experience was like? Or is that I can, unfair?
2: I could I like theorize a world where like th- it's a, it's a, they are able to land the plane a little better with like twice as many episodes, maybe a couple more seasons. But again, you know, you go back to moments like their misunderstanding. Right. Not even misunderstanding that's, is the right word, but like the way they handle enthusiasm. characters like uh, like Sansa. And it's like, well, on some level, you just don't like you just don't get these characters or, or your understanding of them is so different than the journey they have gone through that it doesn't. You may have, like, by expanding the timeline, it would have, like, by by virtue of time, given a better acclamation to where it goes. But on some level, it feels like they graduate, like, the moment the split happens with the text, they've graduated out of their lane, right? Like, this is actually, you know, like, this is, um, I think, like, the phrasing of lane is used in the original essay of, like, the, both in terms of a structure of how these, these two stories split into the two sort of like uh structural acts is different. There's also like as a writer, like I think about what is my own lane? Like, what am I good at? And I Ooh. try to stick to that because I, I, I know what I'm good at. I know what my strengths are. And you like to like branch out and try different things, but also you, there are realizations that like some things are just aren't you. And like, those aren't necessarily things you should tee up and try and hit home runs on. Um, and it increasingly feels like it's more that like the second run of that show should have been, at the very least, the writers recognizing maybe we aren't the <laughs> you know the ones to handle this. Um, like you know, even this like particular season, um, the the uh, the episode before uh, the the big the big fight. It's the uh, I forget what the Winterfell. episode was called, but it's the talkie episode at yeah. Winterfell. You know, which I actually think is one of my favorite episodes in the whole series. But is one that is uh, I don't know how much of that is like uh, recency bias because it stands out so relative to a lot of other like lower wrong episodes that surround it. But also it is smart to just
1: put the Citadel D- DLC <laughs> in the in Speaking the final yeah. game.
2: Fireware right. Structure. right. Yeah. Well, it's taking advantage of like you know having all these characters and just like nothing happens, but everything happens. But like the reason that that episode was so satisfying was because. Um well one, it's written by like one of the better writers on, on the show that seems to like understand the characters. It wasn't written by the showrunners. Um, but uh it got back you know, it like harkens back to like what you fell in love with it's like, oh, this actually was a show about talking before it was a show about like people dying, or the dying was incidental to the talking. And I don't know. I, I, I think they grad I think they graduated out of their lane, but then you become powerful and it's quote unquote your story. Right. And and, and maybe they just weren't the ones that, that should have finished it.
1: I think there's, there's an element of that. And Kato, by the way, mentions that that episode was called A Knight of the Seven Kingdoms because it does uh, build and hinge on uh, someone being knighted. Uh, God, that
0: is such a that is such a DLC name also. It really would be. The DLC would be called that 100%.
1: But I think something else that happened along the way here, and I think this was a thing that surprised a lot of people, is that – um. I think in the books but certainly throughout the, the show as well, uh, there are a lot of inconsistencies of character or like a mixture of like showing the good – how the good can be mixed with the bad. Uh, and I think something that – something weird that happens in this – in these final two seasons is it increasingly becomes preoccupied with this notion of who is going to win the Game of Thrones. Like, like that becomes the central drama of the uh of of the final run of seasons here. And the weird thing is if you like the early part of the show, uh certainly the books like that's not the point. It really isn't. Like by by book 4, uh you're kind of just praying for this to end in some <laughs> ways. Not in the like I'm I'm sick of the story, but like what is being portrayed is so unrelentingly nightmarish and bleak uh that you are just starting to think like this this can't go on this is like a civilization destroying event uh and the harm that is being inflicted is just is just staggering the entire point right is that uh to people at the highest levels of this power this is a game this is a contest for uh for control for influence and to everyone else this is a catastrophe uh this is a tragedy and in these last couple seasons, it becomes increasingly interested in this idea of okay, but what's the final score gonna be after overtime? Right. And that's just that is a different that's that's a different answer than the question the show was originally posing. And I think this is the other thing that sort of throws us off at the end. This is why increasingly we see these these sudden twists of character, these sudden like flipping of alliances and allegiances, because it becomes about having everything converge on an answer to who's going to win, who's going to be on the throne at the end of all this. And it loses track of the fact that basically the story that's been told prior to this and that have been set up in, you know, in a lot of the earlier seasons and a lot of the earlier books, is that the actual question is, how do we escape this cycle, right? How do we escape these institutions, these motivations that generate like recurring uh, tragedies like this? And Game of Thrones by the End, is this close to being like? So, are you team Danny or it's team not, John? It's not.
0: It's not that close to like. Did you see the Elizabeth Warren and uh, uh who uh, Alexandria oh, ocasio Cortez? Yeah, yeah, a video that went up today about how they they had to switch from from team Danny to team Sansa, team Sansa. Well, I mean, some of the the of market, You
2: know, like the stuff I'd see at airports recently, where like Xfinity was like. Talking to uh, talk into your moat, and you'd say like, "Vote for the throne," and then like an, a graphic comes up, and you and, and you pick, and it's like the moment the advertising is being is reflecting the narrative in that in that way. It's probably telling you something about the way you framed the narrative,
0: right? <laughs> right. I mean, like, look, it's it's Martin. It's also it.
2: natural to go into those camps, right? Like, I mean, like it's like it's a it's a it's a world of factions, and so that, right, that but makes I, sense to some degree. But I think it is reflective of like their own failings narratively that people then find themselves falling into those sorts of Factional camps,
0: right? Or well, like the first book was called Game of Thrones, a Game of Thrones, but the series in the in the books is A Song of Ice and Fire, right? Like, and you can so clearly imagine the the conference room meeting. That's like, well, we can't call it A Song of Ice and Fire, Game of Thrones. Yeah, that that we can fucking sell. Who's going to end up on the throne? And like, not that the story doesn't have not doesn't have that element in it already, but you're right that it just becomes entirely preoccupied by that at the end there, which. It is I think <laughs> part like of it's like if the wire built to Carcetti getting elected, right? Right. Well, like the thing that the car that that uh, the wire did smartly was, and that I think the finale of Game of Thrones gestures at but does not deliver because it ends the show is that life goes on, right? Like the Carcetti election ends, and the next scene is the the you have to eat a bowl of shit scene, right? That like things keep coming. The world doesn't end when this happens, and instead with Game of Thrones, what we get is like. I, I don't know. Arya is going to find a new place to bring white people to, and
2: look, man. No one they've uh, never gone west. No one even just thought about it. Yeah, just no, like, no one's nope.
0: ever gone west before. Yeah, uh-huh. um, the I mean the other half of this is actually maybe there's a corrective here to uh, to, uh, to Fetchy's argument, which is yes, sociological versus psychological storytelling, but. What if they actually are still doing sociological storytelling and the reason we don't like it is their sociology is bad? Because that's how you get Sansa saying that the reason she's so strong is because she's lived through sexual assault. That's how you get the depiction of uh, Danny's revolutionary army as being like terrifying and other and stomping around and like shot in such visual ways that are like historically coded – Along the lines of like depicting savage black and brown armies, um, like, and also the ways in which like Grey Worm's final act to like go try to help the people of Noth is is framed as being like unimportant and even like further, you know. Ah, yeah. There's just no getting through to him. He's just never going to be part of, of, just of wash our society. Just brush him off. Okay. Yeah. Come on. Let's get to it.
2: We got to go see where John's going. He
0: doesn't get to be in the final montage. Starks only, baby. Um, it's it's wild that like actually all of these characters actually maybe not all of them. I think I think Tyrion's final shit is just, like, all this season is just the most, can we make a character make the worst decisions again and again for no reason, despite being the smartest person in the room? Um, but m- many of them do point to kind of uh, institutional pressures or reasons to why they're doing what they're doing. It's just that I don't know that the showrunners have a good idea of how those institutions actually do work. Or, again, specifically, I, I think that, like, but that may- think that, is, that
2: may- is that maybe illustrative of like some earlier points of like yeah adaptation is an art yes. you don't necessarily need to fully grasp what I, okay i've never adapted a book but i i i talking to friends who are like screenwriters like it, it seems like it's it's possible to adapt a work without necessarily internalizing everything about like what the you know what makes every part of it tick right totally. so it's like not hard for me to imagine like these showrunners having been uh, like, dunning for the most part, like by and large, like a pretty great work of like merging characters, cutting a lot of fat yeah. from like some really long books, and like finding a way to like mainstream a lot of like really difficult concepts, ideas, a strange world, and making it the most popular television show of all time. Like that, that's a pretty difficult feat. And then when suddenly tasked with, well, no, you have to do X. Ex- you have to do the DLC, like we and like there's some broad, you know, some broad strokes. Like you got to get to here, but you know, there's like 40 hours right. you got to fill from there, and that's just like a, f- that's a fundamentally different ask in a way that may reveal like how little you grasped what you were adapting because right. those are dis, those are different things.
0: It's already hard to just write, like I. You've written you, you know obviously you, I don't know if you've written fiction before but you've written journalism before you've written big feature stories how many right. times when you've written a big feature story have you finished it looked back at it looked at your notes and gone this is not the thing that I thought I was going to write like maybe the basic points are there but wow like this is actually like really not as funny as I thought it would be. Or like, uh, you know what? The character disappeared in the middle of this thing and I just got caught up by listing facts and I didn't actually stick to the character who was interesting. Like writing is already very hard. So the idea of both needing to do that and adapt it uh, and then to lose that that first step is, uh, yeah, I'm with you. I think it's probably really hard to do that sort of work. And I'm sympathetic in that way. But I'm also frustrated that like, you have the most popular show in America, in the world. Maybe I don't. I don't know if there's a more popular show in bigger markets. There probably is, uh, but in America at least, where you have a character who is—and this is not a defense of Danny because I think Danny is also someone who has historically in the rest of the show been like positioned as a white savior has like, I just like, cannot, I cannot talk about how frustrating it was in 2016 to see like, hurrah, Hillary Clinton stands, sharing pictures of of Hillary Clinton with dragons, and like you know, underneath, literally people being like, "Yo, this is the woman who was like positioned as a white savior for season after season after season." (laughs) There's there's a season
2: where the final shot is Danny surrounded by brown people as like soaring violins play. She's lift lift, lift lifted up. And Danny's a character who, and the the show, and the show is not being critical of that. It's it's saying you like you should you should be. Totally, about this. breaker and, of chains. And, and, but the thing that's, that's frustrating—that seems like a, a misreading. Maybe you, you, both of you can like illustrate this better as you know having more familiarity with the books. But like, I get the impression that the book would be implying a little more of like a wink, wink about like how you should be feeling about this scene more so than the show is portraying that.
0: The books so, have some issues, my guy.
1: Yeah, <laughs> the, the, the books—the the books too have issues. Um, I. Also, though I, I again, I think an interesting thing to note here is that how quickly do these groups of like liberated armed uh, people of color morph from being yeah. uh, like people like that you identify as people like in, who are suffering and who uh, need aid in achieving their liberation. How quickly that show flips from that to them being just pure instruments uh-huh, of someone uh-huh. else's will, and then a threat, um, and that's and and that is a move I'm just not sure I would have seen. Uh, th- like I, I'm not as sure the 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 books would have screwed up as much because the books do again almost to a fault do a better job of laying out more motivation, creating more characters to explain, like, the perspectives of different groups within its world. Uh, whereas here, it it very much begins to feel like it's Khaleesi and Friends. hmm And that, I think, basically guarantees that that imagery, which was already troubling enough, uh, becomes almost unredeemable.
0: Yeah. Well, and it gets to my most... Fr- the most frustrating point for this finale for me is the moment where... Uh, John kills Danny, um, and it's not because of the killing. It's not because the Drogon, the dragon, decides to burn the Iron Throne, which is maybe the only prediction I've ever made that's come true in this in this show. Uh, <laughs> it's so fucking funny when it happens. Um, it's that her final scene is her being presented as naive as to the decisions she's made, um, with one or two tells that maybe she is indifferent to people. But she's not being strategic. She's being she's she's the mad queen, right? Which is a whole bucket of problems that we can get into around representation yeah, you, of you wanna, but, that, yeah, but I don't even like want to get in there. yes, whole pitch of the
2: finale being like, well, actually, it's just the blood that's in your. It's veins just the blood in your like veins your determines
0: your blah blah blah. Right? Totally. Absolutely. Doesn't fuck John over somehow? But anyway, <laughs> the I mean, a fifty-fifty, right? you to flip of the gods, flip a coin. Um, whatever. People in that world might believe that it might not yet. Might have, you know what the fuck I mean? So the thing mm-hmm. that I actually want to focus on is like what there was an opportunity for there is the reveal instead of the reveal that she is childlike in her view of the world and and her quote-unquote destiny is a leader who does have revolutionary goals and who you know maybe is driven to make decisions that are appalling but that under- has a strategy for why she does that thing it was very funny to see people make these arguments on twitter uh, god who the fuck was it it was it was i don't remember if it was it wasn't Jamal Bowie. It was like someone from the pundit, the political pundit class. I might have been it might have been Jeet, uh, actually, Jeet Air, is that his name? Is that who I'm thinking yeah. of? Yes. Uh, who made this argument. Um, but that, like, oh, here is why she she has to kill all of these people after they surrender, because if she doesn't, it sets a certain precedent. That other kingdoms who rebel, you know, uh, will be safe if they just surrender when the dragon shows up, and blah, 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 blah. And I don't necessarily agree, I don't agree with that, but I would have loved the version of this story that ended with her saying I am capable as a leader and I'm knowledgeable about the damage I caused and here is what my reasoning is and presented a fully fleshed out argument for why she makes the turn she does. And obviously, ideally, would have had that turn uh, not just telegraphed, but developed over episode after episode after episode, where in the end, instead of being just kind of like this child who has gone mad, you have a character who has a fundamentally distinct worldview that Jon Snow has to actually deal with and actually has to confront and cannot wave away as like a you're right, she did go mad because the revolutionary worldview that, that her people have is incompatible with the reformist worldview that the, that the Seven Kingdoms have. And those two don't actually ever come into conflict. They decide, you know what, we're just going to go over here and go to Nath, Noth whatever, and deal with what's going on over there and not actually have to confront the fact that all of the people in the Seven Kingdoms will never like remake anything on their own will. They will never break the cycle. In fact, they have just created a new different cycle, and the show doesn't even want to like frame it in that way. The show does want to frame, like, wow, Tyrion kind of did end up on the throne in the end. Sure, the throne is now the hand, the chair of the hand, instead of uh, the iron throne, but...
2: You know and like don't worry it's fine that we just put this computer AI in charge of like the whole kingdom like how t- how could how could anything <laughs> go wrong with a person who uh, can see the future and can manipulate everything to what and
1: yet couldn't and yet couldn't have altered it to be less
0: nightmarish right until he chose to yeah right I, well that's I just see, bad story. I enjoy
2: I've mm. seen, that's been one of like the theory crafting things going around sure. at the end is like I choose to enjoy. The theory that actually, ooh, you just put, actually, a parasite has just manipulated right, itself right. into becoming a, 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 the king. I'm glad that indoctrination and, uh,
0: theory is live ending. and well, and just in all, just everything in its right place. Uh, I hear that if you if you keep playing for 70 hours, Kojima comes onto the disc himself <laughs> and says, now you've unlocked the real ending. Now, now time for the real Game of Thrones. I could Speaking not help of, thinking that there was a that there's a sequel coming like that. So felt like a setup for a sequel and not for a. There's conclusion. a lot of websites that need one.
1: Well, uh, that's that's the that's the other part <laughs> of of this sort of Game of Thrones double header. Uh, before before we go to our break, we should talk about the fact that Game of Thrones uh, basically like. I- this Under, is a big with,
0: conversation Rob Rob we should go to a break and come back and do this Because I know you want to sneak this in But I, Patrick is grinning Patrick is ready to talk about media <laughs> with a capital M Alright
1: then we will Take a break uh, And then we will get Then, then we will discuss uh, What's going to happen to all of us Once the
3: <laughs> Game of Thrones Traffic
1: hose is turned off At the source Patrick, you seem like a pretty savvy guy
2: wow. You've, uh, you've
1: managed to stay afloat in this turbulent media ecosystem uh, Hopping, from, uh, <laughs> hopping from one sinking oh. vessel to the next
2: <laughs>
0: Have you figured out what's next yet, <laughs> Patrick? Um,
2: Well, uh, you know, uh, if I did, I I wouldn't be telling you. Mm. You
0: should tell me though next time. Did, okay. Will <laughs> the next place have Game of Thrones traffic
3: to sustain well, itself? We gotta,
2: you gotta give it like eighteen months for the, the for the prequel comes. Okay. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, there was well, it was a piece from Splinter, right? Yes. Um, that you uh, that you had linked us to. Uh, yeah, Jack Crosby.
0: Right. So um, if people who don't know Splinter is the kind of politics site from Gizmodo uh, media group, but it's also kind of just like, like it is it is the politics site, but also it's 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 Gawker too in some ways, you know? It's like yes. yes. it is quickly becoming one of my favorite things on that on that network on the the. they
2: have uh, a lot of really good sharp writers that are uh that weigh in on a variety of topics including Game of Thrones. Yeah, yes. and Jack Crosby writes a piece called um uh, what time does the Game of Thrones traffic end? Although, you yes. can... I'm so
0: glad you noticed this. Go ahead.
2: Okay, so, so th- I mean, this is not um, <laughs> new, but so, like, the original headline that gets written for a piece when it gets put into a database um, is often, like, hard-locked into a cache somewhere, whether it's, like, the headline that, like, Google will pull up or it, um, it's in, like, the, what, they, what they call the, the slug, which is, like, when you see, in this case, like, splinternews.com slash word, dash word, dash word, which makes the head. Sometimes the original headline sticks in there because you're the the the, the underlying technology isn't equipped to change it. Or once it's out in the, in the world, Google does its pass. You want to stick with that original pass. And so this piece that Jack wrote that eventually got the headline, what time does the Game of Thrones traffic end? I only noticed this like right before recording this, Austin. Yeah, But it's like uh, Google bring or my uh, Chrome brings it up as Game of Thrones traffic ending, Comma, explained, yes. Which is also a very funny, uh, voxy, They're so uh, funny. Shot But headline. even what time um, does
0: the Game of Thrones traffic end is like um is like a parody of SEO focused yes. headlines where you just when, w-
2: when is when is the Super when Bowl is the Super Bowl on?
0: is is if you want some traffic. Right now, you should publish a story that's when is the Super Bowl 2020 because it will, it will over the next eight months or whatever, slowly build up that traffic. It's going to be less than eight months. Holy shit, just it's already do, May. Just do
2: a search for any – like just think of any sports event coming up, like, Right, in just a random baseball game. There are hundreds that take place over the course of the week. There will be a page – set up on a number of a sports sites that is just like, here's the ABC link. Uh, the C- anyway.
0: In fact, someone today pointed out, I think it was Kyle, was it Kyle Orland, that if you search um when does the when does the PlayStation 5 come out? Uh, it Google will tell you November 2020 uh, because a site that was like ps5 playstation 5.com <laughs> in 2014 published a story saying speculating that November 2020 would be when the PS5. Came the, you know out. what?
2: I mean, you know what the, three, the, the three-eyed Raven was right. Uh, <laughs> that's probably will end up happening. Um. So, so uh, Jack writes this like really short piece. It's not like a, a grand analysis of 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 the the proliferation of Game of Thrones traffic across websites. But have you been to any place? Have you been to IGN? I mean, this is like been device I- com. Anywhere, like literally any media site. This is not just something that's specific to uh uh video game websites, no. as uh, folks like Jim Sterling might want to reductively use to get likes on Twitter. Um, is damn. That- Game of Thrones, I generally like Jim's work, but come on, Got it's him. just, you know. <laughs> Shots! Uh, you, a, lot, a lot of people have been writing about Game of Thrones because it's easy traffic. A lot of people have been writing about Game of Thrones because they like Game of Thrones, and Game of Thrones is fun to talk about, it is, uh, has a lot of vectors in, so it's like if you're interested in politics, like, Game of Thrones is, has a lot to chew on there, if you're interested in characters, if you're interested in drama, if you're interested in spectacle, like... There's just a whole lot that's happening in that show and people click on it. And so it has, uh, especially this season, but definitely starting a couple of seasons in, became like one of those reliable things that a lot of places were writing about. This is true of also all of the Marvel films. Yeah. Like you will constantly see MCU based content like everywhere, which is a a mixture of writers also having interest in that and uh it being proven Traffic. Where if you publish that, as Jack points out, what you're hoping for is like either you have like a take that goes viral, which is a one in a million shot. You just don't know how that's going to go. Or you get uh, not quite one in a million, maybe one in a thousand um, where like Google News or Facebook or Apple News or Pocket or whoever um, picks your piece out of the ether, dumps it in to be the one that gets promoted. Um And that just sends tons of traffic. And it's just easy. There are very few things in media where it's guaranteed clicks. Um, And Game of Thrones has been one of those things. Marvel is another one of those. And so, you know, this this piece from Jack basically kind of walks through how this worked at Splinter. And, like, is, I think, interesting in thinking about media at large. But I kind of got set off from this because of Jim's tweet. Because I, I, I should just bring it up. Yeah. Um... So uh, Jim wrote a couple couple days back, now uh, Game of Thrones is over, what will video game websites do for content? Um, and he's not the the first one to point something that's out. I think even uh, Kyle Orland, who we mentioned yep. earlier, <laughs> not too long ago, posted a photo of the entire front page of Polygon having more or less all Game of Thrones content, um, which he uh, quickly tried to walk back as just, just being an observation about uh, games media when it felt more in line with Jim Uh, and being sort of a pot shot at uh, a website doing what all websites uh, have to do in uh, 2019, um, which is that you look for the crossover between audiences. You try and find what people are willing and interested in clicking on, and you do that without hopefully selling your soul in the process and maybe finding it to be in line with the values of the website that you are running and contributing to. Um, And so I don't know what happens after this is all over, except that, there will, there will be something else um, because I think there is a desire for water cooler stuff and something else will kind of fill that void. But Game of Thrones was a particularly zeitgeisty version of that.
0: Well, I think one of the things that is most interesting here, speaking of sociological storytelling, is that, you know, uh, 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 Crosby gets at the fact that so much of this comes from fear or like... You know, a desire to talk about it. You know, he, it's, he's clear that like, oh, hey, people, it's fun to talk about Game of Thrones. It's fun for, to do, you know, a, a, uh, a take a couple days after an episode goes up. But, you know, the 2000 word episode summaries recaps that go up that people write while the episode is airing so that they can be the first to press so that they can get that SEO so the traffic comes their way, much less fun, but reliable. Uh, And in an era where there are... It's like going to E3 for us. (laughs) Yeah, totally. In an era where there are layoffs every couple of months in the the industry we're in, when good writers and good reporters lose their jobs, not because they are failing to hit their goals, uh, but just because the company has decided to go in a different direction. Being able to point to something that is, like, sturdy gives you a little bit more, uh, a little bit more insurance, right? Um, because even if they will fire you, despite the fact that you hit your goals, hitting your goals is still <laughs> super necessary. Uh, and in a, in an era where like the algorithm could change overnight and the strategy we had in, on Facebook two days ago, no longer works because suddenly using colons in the, in the headline makes it illegal to share it or whatever, whatever bullshit happens next, uh, having some sort of source there that it can be a foundation or can be something you can count on is, like, it's very easy to start relying on that. And I don't know that that's, like, capital G good for us, but I do get why it happens. Um, it, might be, it might not be good, but it's true, right? right so, like, when right. I
2: saw, like, a Reset Era thread building on, on Jim's tweet, like, I was also bothered because the implication – from Jim's tweet or, like, a general sort of, like, mocking attitude towards sites that do this. Now, granted, it all runs a spectrum, right? Like, there there can be, you know, I think clickbait is a word that is thrown out, like, too casually, um, but certainly there can be work that is merely meant to trick and obfuscate so that you click on something. Um, writing about Game of Thrones is not clickbait. Like, people are clicking on it because they're interested in Game of Thrones. And right. There's a fundamental difference between the two of those things. And so... Mocking a place like Polygon, which like one, you're just ignoring like the shift towards general entertainment that site and many others have done over the last five years, and it's not just a Chris Plant or 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 someone else writing about movies that they like. It's hiring entertainment reporters right. from that field to to build that out. Um, there's an underlying like is the implication like oh they're just going for the easy stuff when if they just wrote about fucking video games. Like, people click on that shit. Well, no, like, the dark truth is, like, as someone that sees video game traffic every day and writes that stuff, like, there's a reason they're writing about Game of Thrones. Because, like, that's easier to predict that people are going to click on it than writing about any random video game. Right now, there aren't even really that many video games that if you just, like, said, let's just start, just write off Fortnite. Like, that's not guaranteed traffic in written form, right? Like, they're like, we're, like, in this specific case... Like what uh, Splinter's uh, speaking to, what uh, uh, these like larger criticism – it's really around like the written word and like the take economy and reaction content and like which of those do people want to click on? I I will tell you like a lot of it's not video games or it's way more risky to write about a video game because there just isn't a guarantee in the way that if you put Game of Thrones attached to it, no matter what you're going to say – there's just a higher level of I want to click and read about it that is un. Unre- that is that is not the same for a lot of other things, including a shitload of video games.
0: And I think it's super frustrating. Did you did either of you watch um, the latest Errant Signal video that went up at the beginning of this uh, month? Uh, Errant Signal Chris Franklin uh, at Camp Oh, I think Sur- I guess I'm tweeting on about Twitter. it. Though. Yeah, he tweeted about it for a while ahead of um ahead of his uh his uh, video about it. Um, he was kind of just like musing on the fact that for him as a content creator, so people don't know, he does like video essays about video games over on YouTube. Great essays, long form,
2: right? Like not, yeah, not like two long or five form, minutes,
0: long form, but long. But but honestly, I think actually shorter than the law lo- than, <laughs> well, uh, there are people there yeah, are people who make 90 fair. minute video game crit yeah, that yeah, yeah, i yeah. as an editor like yeah, i right. so badly want to get in there with a scalpel and help people focus their stuff and find a single thesis and argue for it so badly i understand so he, the desire he was to be long form when this
2: stuff started yes. like eight years ago yes. it is no he has now been eclipsed a hundred percent a
0: hundred you know his that's, videos yeah. are like it's between 10 and 30 minutes, which absolutely is what you would think of as long-form games crit (laughs) five years ago on on YouTube. But at this point, in the age of like 80-minute game crit, not so much. Anyway, he did a video called Talking About Tiny Games, in which he kind of digs into this in the games journalism economy, in the games criticism economy, um, in which he kind of says like, what is the... What are the mechanisms by which... People who cover video games are rewarded, and who are the winners and losers in that process? And the winners are games that have a built-in audience. Um, and you know, he ends up making basically a a push, you know, on himself and on us to be champions of small games that we think are great. To in fact, not be critics in the traditional sense and treat those games as the same as. AAA products on a store shelf that come with fifty or hundred or two hundred million dollar marketing budgets. That when something like we know the devil comes out, uh, it is not like Assassin's Creed. When something like even something like the Return of the Obra Dinn comes out, uh, with all of the the you know the established uh, rep that that game's creator had, or, um, or even
2: the game I reviewed today uh, on the site, A Plague Tale: Innocence, right, which is like sure. a game that has trappings of, like, larger games in which if that was from an established Ubisoft charging $60, probably would have come down, like, a lot harsher on its failings, but taken for what it is in context, like, really liked it and wanted to recommend it to a lot of people.
0: Right. And so, like, that is kind of his his push there, and I am so, like... We've been, I've, we've been at the site, Patrick, you and I now, for just about three years. Rob, you, you've you been in this... I mean, we've all been in this industry now for a long fucking time. It doesn't even need to be about this site. We know what the traffic looks like when you cover a pet project, when you cover a game that you think is fascinating. We've written about movies and TV shows from time to time here. We used to have Open Thread, where we were like, that was explicitly our place to champion things that we thought were cool, but was not necessarily going to be a traffic driver. And, like, I cannot begin to communicate to people how rare it is that that stuff, that using the platform to push stuff that we think is cool actually produces an effect or gets eyeballs on it. And so it can be so demoralizing if you are a quote-unquote content creator in 2019 who spends hours writing about something that you love. I, I can imagine this in television journalism, right? I can imagine being the person who was like – even other big established things. The person who's like, I'm going to write about Barry. I'm going to write a great like essay about Barry. And then gets 7,000 people who read that essay. Good-ass show.
2: You should watch the second season of Barry.
0: I have not done that yet. I need to. Mm, And and then that same person a week later shits out 700 words on Game of Thrones and gets a minimum 70,000 views or whatever, right? It can be so demoralizing and can create an attitude in an editorial room that needs to be constantly battled against that why are we ever chasing the little thing? And you can you can make arguments to yourself about, you know, oh, well, this is about prestige, I want to do a good feature, or this is about again championing the the little guy, finding someone who is underrepresented, sharing your your platform. And we do our best to do all of those things. But in the world where there is this constant pressure from above to do traffic and to do numbers, it can be hard to find a strategy that is effective at pursuing those things. And I actually think that this is true not just because the traffic numbers, but also because of things like budgets that like, I've told this story before, but when I was working at uh, Giant Bomb, I was trying to get a freelance program off the ground and, you know, I had a couple bucks to play with and I wanted to make sure we worked with writers who were going to write about games that weren't getting written about other other places and writers from marginalized uh, backgrounds and, and mar- with marginalized identities who did not have access to a platform like Giant Bombs. And one of the biggest hurdles I came to was not the other people at Giant Bomb coming on board for that. Everyone was excited about it. It was not finding talent. There are more than enough critics who had great things to say and smart things to say uh, who could who could write with me. It was not about coming finding good pitches. I was overwhelmed by by the pitches. It was working at a company where for them, what a freelancer was or a contract worker was someone who was like – because of CBS, part of like a big you know a construction union or was someone who had years of experience doing video production work. Someone who had been – you could, could point to previous tax returns in the field. But if I wanted to work with someone like Heather Alexandra, right, who is now at Kotaku as a, as a full-time you know, staff member there, um, who at the time was a YouTube games critic, it was like, well, what does she point to to prove she does this for real? And you can't point to her YouTube channel. Um, and those are, the sh- those are parts of the, the ways in which these structures control and limit what voices end up on them. And so what you end up doing is like, well, fuck know, yeah, thankfully, in that case, I managed to like figure out a way through. But when you only have X dollars to play with, when you know your traffic goals are Y, you end up needing to make those decisions that are not always that you don't feel good about. Where you go, well, do we cover the hot new thing, or do we do, or do we greenlight this like retrospective piece about a game that we think is really interesting, but that we know isn't going to get that no one else cares about. Like, even if you just take the word traffic out, if you just say, like, does our audience care about this? And if the answer is no, but you think it's important, you're stuck at this dilemma. You're stuck at this, like, crossroads. And this is the, 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 where I'm building to this is, this is why it's valuable sometimes to have the Game of Thrones shit, because you can go, you know what? We're going to run that Game of Thrones story this week. I know that traffic's gonna be good. Let's please green light the history of the front mission series because I know we don't need that traffic this week. It's okay. Let's let's, you know, commission this piece uh, about how important uh, Dark Souls 2 was to this person. Let's commission this story about how important we know the devil was, with you know, someone who was was coming to understand their own gender, right? We can commission those stories because we know that traffic is coming from these other places. And I think the best outlets use the kind of cornerstone traffic, you know, hoses like game of Thrones to then go do good work elsewhere. What I think I'm worried about, uh, what I think I'm worried about is that because we've seen the last few years where like even sites that have done that are now moving away from that model. That was like the Buzzfeed model for years was like, do trash to, to, you know, be able to pay for good reportage and, even they are like, mm, I don't know if that model actually works anymore. I'm so curious, not what the next Game of Thrones is in terms of what the next thing where you can count on traffic is, but where what is the next tool that we as, as editors and writers and content creators will use to let people do the shit we want to do instead of... Doing only the thing that is the bottom line, if that makes sense. Do you know what I mean? I want, I want to know what the next tool is that we have in our toolbox to let us tell the stories we want to tell because we know our basics are fucking covered. And maybe that isn't about Game of Thrones. Like maybe that isn't like the next TV show. Um, maybe it's unions. Maybe it's like I, you know, like I don't. But like, what is it? What is the thing? That I mean, it's, we can, if someone
2: stumbles upon a formula, and then everyone else right. goes, "All right, yeah, let's run this show. We'll into run the this for a while." Until, yeah. Um, yeah. Or even, like, you know, the the, the part of, like, uh, at a certain point, at Waypoint, when we were like, we should cover some more of the bigger games more. It was like, all right, well, how do you compromise on that? You do that with, it's not just a buy the numbers review. It's like, well, let's try and take the critical lens that we apply to all sorts of other things and apply that to the big thing that lots of people are talking about. Right. And maybe we can have our key needed, too, in which we get to put in the headline, X game, but we also get to say... You know what you know. Our critical take on it, whether right. it was something we liked or we didn't like, Um and that was a way where you try and you get the the Game of Thrones or, or whatever in the headline, while also uh not feeling as though you're kind of like you know selling your soul down the river uh, just for the for the traffic. Right, Rob.
0: He's thinking. Yeah.
2: I can see his thoughts. I can
1: no, see him trying to. Like part of it is. uh Someone is the just realities of the entire ad-supported model right now across different media, but particularly acute in web media uh, yeah. that make this stuff really tough. I think also there's a broader ethos in business where nobody th- there's very little appetite for investment uh, for building up infrastructure and organizations and institutions that can like reliably generate returns. And there's much more of an appetite for uh, the idea that we are going to take a lot of mighty swings. And if one of them knocks it out of the park, then that justifies it. Um, But most people are not going to have that home run or grand slam idea. And so what you end up with is, just a business environment across a lot of different industries, where you see really strange decisions about resourcing uh, being made uh, in terms of what bets people want to make and what kind of returns they tend to turn their noses up, uh, turn their noses up at. So, I, you know, I, I think there's a lot of things that have to change, and it's, and I'm at a point where I know like. A lot of this feels like it is out of my hands, yeah. right? Like I'm not sitting there. I'm like there are things I can do. I can I can skew the odds a little bit. Uh, but in terms of changing these dynamics, I'm not really sure what the solution is because there is likely not another game of Thrones. Uh, that is like there are popular shows Game of Thrones was a different type of phenomenon Uh, our last waypoint is I think sports suffers from this a little bit too Uh, LeBron James did not make the playoffs this year this has actually been kind of a problem for uh, NBA ratings a little bit also the fact that they were you know well, they, they've gone up against Game of Thrones during these playoffs a couple times and people are watching Game of Thrones and they're not <laughs> watching the NBA playoffs. I think
0: part of the thing that's that I'm, I keep getting stuck on is that it would be, I think about something like Patreon or direct-to-consumer stuff, paid newsletters, all that shit. And once you have a following, you could do that and you could cover what you could cover. And as writers and content creators we would be able to make our bills. We would be able to pay our rent. You'd be able to make your mortgage, probably, Patrick. But you'd only be talking to the people who you'd already converted and maybe the the slow trickle of new people. You wouldn't be leading the charge in the way that, like, theoretically, when you wield all of the influence of a big media company, you can actually shift the culture little bit by little bit by little bit. Um, You know, I, I think about the moments when... I think about stuff like... The labor reporting that's that's gone on over the last few years by people at Kotaku, by by people here at Waypoint, I think about stuff like our coverage of something like uh, our our coverage on guns last year as being moments when we tried our best to shift a larger conversation. And I think you're kind of saying like, no, I'm not going to do that. Once you remove yourself from the the kind of big media company. Shit, like when you when you're like, you know what? I'm just going to write about the shit I want to write about. Pay me five bucks a month to help me do that. Um, and I'm not. And here I am not calling out the people who do that. That is very appealing. I used to run a Patreon. Maybe I will again sometime in the future. Who knows? But what I what I think the reason that I think we are willing to, to work inside of these confines. The reason why we're willing to look for the next Game of Thrones is because the promise that's being made is you can reach so many more people. You can really help try to shift that conversation. And you can even do it while writing about Game of Thrones because you can write a piece that brings up questions of sociology, because you can write pieces that make you think about what the history of politics and culture is. And even if it's just to say like, hey, they keep fucking up on the way that they write about uh, you know, sexual assault and rape, you can be that person who is addressing that topic to a wide audience of people who probably would not have clicked on that story if it didn't say Game of Thrones. And so I, I, I also, like you, rankle a bit when I see people... Just call it all clickbait because I see the writers who are doing the real work and who are using it as either a platform to dig into things that they care about or using it to supplement and and provide for those bigger picture uh, ideas that they're pursuing. And, you know, I think I think it is I would which one of you said that it's not good, but it's true. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that, that was, was me. And, that and, was you. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and it's I just handling a Game of Thrones character, I think, actually. In
2: the, <laughs> you know, in the same way that um it's reductive to call, you know, the front page of Polygon all having Game of Thrones clickbait. I think it's reductive to in the larger media landscape to reduce that to just, well, it's easy traffic. Because right. um, while on some level that is true, that is not necessarily the way it's wielded by critics and, uh, you know, people who are who are using that, like you said, as a springboard to talk about other things, because mm-hmm. to get you to click on something because it says Game of Thrones, but then actually, even the essay we talked about in this Waypoints, right? Like, it's about Game of Thrones, but right. it's not about Game of Thrones, right? Like, it uses that as, like, a context to talk about larger ideas of storytelling. If you just told me, like, if the two, all right, The two of you are bad examples because you would read the piece that's just about, like, the psychological and the sociological. (laughs) um, But, like, I probably wouldn't. Um, And – but putting that in the times of Game of Thrones was, like, really fascinating. It made me totally rethink what was interesting and appealing about that story to not just me but, like, my wife and, you know, all of our friends who – they're not online. They don't think about, you know, stuff this way. And they share these articles on Facebook in the way that, like, gets condemned – Uh, but I'm out there, I'm like, I'm out there at the bars listening to these people talk about this shit all the time. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, as, as critics, we can be reductive as well, but you know, this, this particular thing rankled me because I think it's just a misunderstanding of how the economy works. And as you said, Austin, the, the essentially tricks that are used to prop it up at times.
1: Yeah. I think also we see some of these dynamics, outside like this is not just a video games entertainment media uh reporting issue right like you see this dynamic in sports as well like this idea that everyone is trying to find just the deepest reserve of like mass interest in something uh and they will just continue creating content around it uh this is the first NBA playoffs in a while where we haven't had a LeBron James led team, right? Uh, competing in the playoffs that was a ratings concern for the NBA, and uh, apparently to some extent that's been borne out. Now, obviously the ratings are also depressed by the fact that people are watching a lot of Game of Thrones on uh, <laughs> during you know during the Sunday night games, uh, which has kind of hurt them as well. But uh, it is striking the degree to which. In terms of the way sports media is operating right now, uh, LeBron James is still like one of the top stories. Doesn't matter that his team isn't really doing anything. It is now a reality show in happening in sports media, and we saw the latest chapter of that this week uh, when we had Magic Johnson, who we talked about a, a you know a few weeks back, uh, his epic form of quitting uh the Lakers just basically going up to the press that were at the Staples Center and being like I quit tell my boss for me bye uh so that that was kind of how that ended since then LeBron has revealed that he had no idea uh that that was that that was in the wind it completely blindsided him uh yesterday again you know Lakers, not a competitive team right now, doesn't matter. Still, <laughs> still the biggest story in the NBA right now, uh, in part because it involves so many, such a, such a major franchise and so many like compelling characters. And one of those characters remains, Magic Johnson, who went on uh, ESPN's first take yesterday uh, as a time of recording, a, few, a couple days ago by the time you hear this, uh, went on first take uh, met with, Met with Stephen A and talked about why he quit the Lakers. And it was kind of an amazing interview because I have never seen some like somebody so ruthlessly and relentlessly just bash their former co-workers and former employer, but all while very convincingly presenting themselves as not even that mad. Uh, did did either of you catch the excerpts from this interview as Magic sort of laid out why he just bounced?
0: Casually laid it out, like with no regard for the fact that he was dropping bombs and naming names. Yeah, uh huh. It's great. I I don't. He can only do this because he's super rich, right? <laughs> I, that's part of it.
1: I think there's also just an element of um, the guy is such a star and I I don't just mean that in terms of like, like, you know, basketball's had a lot of stars that people don't like, right? Like Kevin Durant, it does not matter what he does on the court, like before or for the rest of his career, for whatever reason, uh, you know, he just doesn't, he's not going to be that easygoing guy that everyone just loves. Like, Kevin Kevin Durant will never be cool. The Go way look Magic at his Twitter cool. feed,
2: he's injured yeah, and dude. he's just spending it being extremely online. He is, yeah. Well, uh-huh. and he had sock puppet accounts too, right? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah.
1: So, and the thing is, Magic. Now, here's the weird thing: Magic is up there saying, like, yeah, I look, I love everybody at the Lakers. I'm not. I'm not mad. I don't. I don't have any beef. My mind just doesn't. I'm not petty. My mind doesn't operate that way. But you should know that Jeannie Buss, owner of the Lakers, is completely in over her head. Uh, she is being pulled in a million different directions by everybody around her, her family, other executives of the Lakers. And uh, the Lakers general manager Rapolinka is a complete snake and was talking shit about me in the you know constantly and blocking what I wanted to do, and was backstabbing me. And, uh, but I'm not angry. I love everybody. I wish them all the best. <laughs> and everyone should give them support and believe in them. And it was and it was wild because like the, just the weirdest thing is it was like what if somebody played the Mark Antony speech in Julius Caesar completely sincere. Mm-hmm. It was like no, Brutus is an honorable man. I love Brutus. Brutus I love that. Guy. You, yeah. And like yeah. you you're like Damn, he does, man. Brutus, is, he, he just—he's so big of him. He just loves Brutus.
0: Why is everyone rioting? I this clip, I I who? So he doesn't have people, is my read, right? Magic is just deciding for himself when and where he goes because in every other case, in something like this, you have a publicist. Or an agent, or someone who was like, "Yeah, no, it's just not going to work out that day." Indefinitely, so you don't get onto a microphone and just get, burn get bridges. Get on your private
2: jet, go to a beach, and we'll see you <sighs> in
1: a month. He, yeah, but he wanted to. I know. That's the that's the thing. This isn't like this isn't like oh damn, like what a misstep for magic. Well, when this, he when he
2: left, like one of his reasons for leaving was like, I just haven't been able to share my takes on Twitter and. Like this is a natural
0: extension of that. It's like ah, I right. finally yeah. finally I get the microphone again. Yeah,
2: yeah.
1: But it's been fascinating to me to also just watch the way that like the convergence of LeBron James, the Lakers, uh Magic's star power and reputation, all the characters associated with the with the Lakers, uh, the fact that like somehow Phil Jackson and Kobe Bryant are still brought up in connection with this story. Uh, it is just fascinating to me the degree to which this is genuinely an interesting sports story I think what is happening in Los Angeles around the Lakers is genuinely fascinating uh because it really does seem like a LeBron James has left his home territory uh-huh. in a, in a weird way and like he is in another country so and yeah. yeah but you know what I mean his like he doesn't have his allies yeah like he he's like he has a reputation but he's not fully in control of what the, that reputation is well like he
0: can't fucking get tai Lu <laughs> to come help him
1: right and so this is like I think there is a fascinating story here about like what happens when you are one of those like not just a generational like you are a type of athlete that appears only once every other generation, right? Like, you, you don't really have peers. Uh, what happens when you try one more time to build your name and, like, build your legend uh, with a group of people who view themselves as the heroes of their own story and think they're on your level? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. on some level, think... There, what they have going on is as big as you, and it is fascinating the ways in which this is falling apart. And that is that is a fascinating sports story that's unfolding. Uh, it's also kind of a, an excruciating one if you know you're starting to worry that is, is LeBron's career going to sort of go out with a whimper uh, in this just absolutely a dysfunctional organization that seems to almost have buyer's remorse about, about having them. Uh, but the other part of this though, is this is also under such a microscope because it is just endless content and endless <laughs> engaging content for everyone who wants to, uh, again like tap into that audience right like there's a lot of people who follow basketball but really they only follow a couple teams a couple players you know there's there's fascinating drama all around sports leagues but it doesn't get this level of attention because it's not going to move the needle you're better off showing the highlights with this team with this group of people with lebron doesn't matter if the only b-roll you've got is lebron You know, sitting courtside on a folding (laughs) chair, talking to somebody and looking ambivalent. Like, doesn't matter. You run that story because it is still the biggest story in sports.
0: I think part of it or or part of the thing that I think makes this interesting to me is when you take that second step and you say – You know, ratings were down this season uh, for the playoffs, Um, despite there being really fantastic playoff games, incredible nail-biting games, even when, you know, you have like a a complete uh, uh, sweep like the, the Golden State Warriors. Uh, just did. You still end up having these like great last second moments or performances that are fantastic to watch. The quality of the game, you know, in wrestling terms, the quality of the product is good right now. LeBron does not need to be here for there to be fa- like great games. There are great players across the board still. And you know, while I think maybe the the Bucks Raptors series has not been what I'd hoped it would be, there have still been great moments. Um, and I'm hopeful for the rest of the series still. Uh, I. It is fascinating to think about. You know, I saw a call the other day that was like, is it time for the NBA to step in with the Lakers and try to like m- make that organization fix its fucking problems? Because the threat is to the NBA as like a product at large, because at the end of the day, it isn't about good basketball on the, on the court. It isn't about having fun games to watch. It is about, will people tune in and people aren't just tuning in because the games are good. People are tuning in for the drama. And my question ends up being like, to tie it back to our, our old WWE conversation what if we monetize the rot? (laughs) Is there a way for the NBA to capitalize on this soap opera shit even more directly that gets people to like tune into the games or will this always just be shit that shows up on ESPN? How give, what I'm saying is give magic Johnson a microphone, bring him to the arena. Let's, let him be a commentator, finally. I just want him in front of a microphone all the time. And I'm curious to see if there is a way, like, is it about more documentary style stuff? Is it about more, like, do you expect in twenty in the 2019, 2020 season for there to be an emphasis on backroom dealings? Uh, a a, a ways in which the NBA can license its product to dig into more of this sort of behind-the-scenes drama because people seem to care about it? Or are they going to just try to clean it up? Are they just going to hope that the fucking organization fixes itself?
1: I I think the NBA might like doing something like that, but I think there's a problem, which is that people do not, like, for the most part, athletes do not like being labeled as like uh clubhouse poison, right. As troublemakers. And I think this is like one of the things that has made Kyrie Irving, uh, really kind of persnickety is because I, to a degree, like somewhat justly Kyrie <laughs> Irving has been identified as like kind of a fractious teammate. But his response to that is to frequently be like, the fuck do you mean I'm a fractious teammate? Right? <laughs> like he's, he's constantly, I don't know what you're talking about explain what you mean. And I think Kevin Durant has had a little bit of this as well. Uh, where the you know the the kind of insecurity and frustration is kind of worn on his sleeve and I think he's probably with some reason concluded that that has probably damaged his value a little bit. Not enough that like he is still going to be an yeah. incredibly in-demand player, but For guys with that talent level, you're not just saying, like, can I get a great contract? You're asking, can I become, like, a cultural icon? Right? Like, can I be – can I keep who I am under wraps enough that, like, to a degree, I can be as popular as Michael Jordan? You know what I mean? Like, Michael Jordan having that friendly public persona despite being, like, kind of a raging asshole. Um, you know, if, if to anyone who actually worked with him. I think there's, there's a lot of incentives for these guys to try to keep that stuff under wraps and don't be so messy in public. And so I think that's going to be the factor that sort of puts the brakes on this a little bit is in general, it's great content for everybody else. I think for the most part, players tend to be ambivalent about it. I think there's also an element of, it's not reality TV. Like a lot of people, mm-hmm. don't get they don't have that desire to get the spotlight in an episode and do the "I'm not here to make friends" thing. <laughs> like I, the other the other part of this, some of these stars and this is this is definitely Kevin Durant. Is some guys just want to be really good at a game yeah. and win and get respect for that. But they don't necessarily want you looking at them all the time outside of that, and I think this is a, this is a thing that like hits a lot of star athletes, right? It's you know you you know you want that you want the fame, you want the you want the championships, you you want the popularity, you don't necessarily want the attention, and fame and attention are two different things. And I think, Austin, what you started proposing there is we monetize that attention uh-huh. and we create that NBA attention economy. And it's already humming whether these players want it to or not. But I think leaning into it is really tough for players. I think a lot of people don't want to be LeBron with the decision. Uh, and I think it's one of the things that accounts for kind of this weird moment we are, we're at with a lot of free agency where you got players who kind of want to make power moves but don't want to be seen doing it. And uh, that's kind of my, that's my, that's my read on this moment.
0: I think that seems accurate. I, I, as much as I would love some sort of like long form uh, multi-week, you know, uh, docu-style thing, looking at the Lakers back room over the next 12 weeks or so as, you know, I, longer than the next six months. I also know that like, if you're anyone on that team, that would be the most disruptive thing possible during a time when all you want to do is figure out how, how you, you and your team can best kind of recover after last season. Yeah. Um, and it would be unfair to expect that, you know?
1: Yeah. Uh, but nevertheless, it's, uh, it's, it's been good content. <laughs> and uh, has been a a much needed shot in the arm to the uh, LeBron James Lakers take economy. Oh, uh, so being this in is, me,
2: being in media in 2019. Nevertheless, it's been good content.
1: God, what was that infamous 2016 quote?
0: Which one? This, which, this which which? You're gonna this have is, to get more specific. I, I'm
1: scared for my country, but this is good content, or something like that. <laughs> God, I, I, I want to say one of the well, things. Well, no, there was
2: like a, it was a uh, – um uh, uh it it's, the former head of – Les Moonves, right? The former head of CVS, I, I believe, yeah. um, before he was ousted oh. for being a fucking monster, who said like, yeah, you know, Trump <sighs> – seems like it's bad for the nation, but damn, like ratings are up. Yeah. Um, and the one I that- believe that –
0: I think the one that Rob is thinking of is Darren Ravel, who is the yeah, um, which was I feel bad for our country, but this is tremendous content. <laughs> tremendous. There God. and then there it is. Tremendous right, that's, is a good that's word. not a political party. That's Dar- Darren
1: Rovell, yep. uh, mm-hmm. whose career sports, intersects yeah. is, is is sort of sports, but really it's about like, do you like money and <sighs> cheering for it? <laughs> But hey, <laughs> nothing but nothing, nothing but respect for a, a reporter who's good on their beat. Uh,
0: uh, there's a he reminds me so much. If you just do a search for home movies, gambling money, you will find a great one minute, 48 second video uh, from a, an episode of the great cartoon home movies um, about a guy who who. You just go, you go look it up. The name of the episode is Stowaway. I forget who the actual voice actor is. I think it's a guest. It's a guest star who's playing a a uh an investment guru named Tom Wilsonberg, who just is extreme, is extremely um uh, that mood, that vibe. Please go look it up. I promise you you will not be disappointed.
1: Austin dropped that in the doc, I, so Kato can toss into Kyle the can, post. Uh-huh. Yeah. We'll do. All right. yeah we will do alright uh our, that'll do it for this week's Waypoints. Uh, our thanks to Two Mellow for the track Slide Asleep off the album After Midnight. You can find that at Uh You can keep up with all of us at waypoint.vice.com uh, I'm Rob Zachney. You can find me on Twitter at Rob Zachney. Uh, Patrick, where can people find you? At Patrick Lopik. Austin.
0: At Austin underscore Walker.
1: You can keep up with Cotto on Twitter at A underscore Cotto underscore appears uh, that will do it for this week's Waypoints we hope you've enjoyed the break please be sure to rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice if it allows such a thing I like to think we're a 5 star podcast but it's not for me to say, that's for you <laughs> give us those 5 stars of your own free will, otherwise I don't want them we'll be back again with Waypoint Radio on Friday, but until then do not give in to astonishment
3: Pack your bags with high quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to Quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365 day returns.
2: In which he says, as I talk slowly and try and <laughs> scroll back. Uh Rob oh, is giving you like
0: neck. death eyes. Oh, stop it, Rob. <laughs> we have a Cotto. Cut it. We have a cut-o. We got a cut-o.
1: Sorry, I'm just like, oh shit, Genie Bus is starting to talk now, too. <laughs> all right. Uh, <laughs> all right. Uh, on the minute? Mm
3: hmm.
2: Cool. All right. Give me give me a second to check my... Hmm, yeah, Windows bumped up my mic.
1: Loves to do it. You hate,
2: yeah, to, see you it. hate to see it. <laughs>
1: there
2: it is. There it is. <laughs> All right, it's fixed. We're good.
1: I'm watching my waveforms as, like, the wind picks up outside and I'm like, hmm, that's not that's not great.
0: Turn turn it down a little.
1: (laughs) The wind? Turn down the wind. Hold on, I I need to we're going to have to clap in again. I need to hear what the hell I'm picking up. Okay. Because like uh, the waveform now like looks worrying. Hmm. (laughs) Yeah. That's just wind. That's just wind.
3: Hmm.
1: Alright, I'm gonna turn it down. That's as good as we're gonna get today, I think. Alright, cool. Uh back to time.is. Uh yeah. on twenty five.
2: Uh,
0: yeah.
2: Nice. Wow, you would like you get a, it? would you like pull yeah. it up at like twenty four?
1: I like it. I got it. That was good. That was that was harrowing. That was some Indiana Jones. <laughs> uh All right, cool. Just turn that off. Oh, hello. Mm? Sorry. Sorry. (laughs) I'm going to be quiet. Bye. (laughs) 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 What was it? I am just curious. Like, what was it?
0: I just... (laughs) I just said, okay, going to turn that off, and I turned my camera off (laughs) as you're trying to do the intro. Great. Good. Good.
2: (laughs) Okay, bye. All
1: right.
0: So we don't want the camera? (laughs) We don't need it because no one's there. Yeah, Kyle's gone. Wait, where are you? I'm at home because of the dentist that didn't happen. Oh did right. go in. After. Okay. I was like, I'll just work. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. All
1: right, cool.
2: Third time's the charm. Here we go.